Welcome everyone to another episode of A Sister and Her Mister. Today we have Dr. Phyllis Skirsch. She is a multi-award winning physician with dual board certifications in OBGYN and integrative medicine. She's the founder and the director of the Integrative Medical Group in Irvine, where women can be treated in a comprehensive way by combining conventional, naturopathic, and holistic medicine. She is also the best-selling author of PCOS SOS and PCOS SOS Fertility Fast Track. Doctor said you got PCOS. Now go on, girl, just lose some weight. Till I took the symptoms into my own hands and reversed them naturally. So I became a dietitian to help my sisters feel the best they've ever felt. Take a step in my direction if you wanna prove them wrong and take control of yourself. Welcome everyone to another episode of A Sister and Her Mister. Today we have Dr. Phyllis Gersh. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's always a pleasure to join the two of you. You know, I'm one of your fan club members. Uh, thank you. We are your fan club members. I know. We, We're your fan club leaders. I think we say your name at least like twice a month on the podcast as a suggestion or just overall, like every time we go live on Instagram as a suggestion for people to, to look you up to, to see you either like in person or virtual. So it goes both ways. Well, we're a mutual admiration society, and hopefully everyone out there listening will gain a lot from this episode. Absolutely. So before we get into it, um, for anyone who isn't familiar with your practice, how does your practice differ from a guy like another gynecologist's office? Because for me, it was such a special experience when I first came to you. It was really life changing. An hour long appointment, you really understood what's going on. Well. It does begin with spending time. There is no way in a typical seven, eight minute appointment to really get to the bottom of what's going on with any individual. I mean, everyone is complex in this day and age, you know, and when you're really trying to solve problems and optimize health, you really have to get into the basics of where did the person come from, their background, their experiences, what are their goals? And then, of course, a deep dive into their medical history and their current status. So that takes time. So when I call myself a gynecologist, I look at it in the broad sense of all of women's health, which emanates actually from their hormones. Because what distinguishes really the difference between males and females, it's really fundamentally the way their hormones work along with their genetics. And genetics, we cannot change at this time, but we can do a lot medically to influence the hormones. So in order to understand anything, you know, like we said, it takes time. And when you really look at the body as an integrative OBGYN doctor, I look at how all the different organ systems work together when things are right in a beautiful, harmonious symphony, and how when things go wrong, it affects every organ system. So when you look at the foundations of life, what I call the prime directive of life, it is the creation of new life. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone has to have kids or unlimited kids, but it's foundational to understand how the female body works by understanding how we evolved, how our bodies were designed to work. And to be fertile, you have to be healthy. Fertility in ancient societies was a sign of health. That's why they had fertility mm -hmm. gods. And in order to be successful with a pregnancy, you need to have a healthy body with every organ system working optimally. It's now recognized finally as an OBGYN and having delivered thousands of babies, this became pretty obvious to me early on in my career that it's essential to have a woman who is optimally healthy conceive so that she can deal with what is the ultimate stress test, which is pregnancy. So every organ system is really taxed to the hilt during pregnancy, and you're always on thin ice between health and a complication. So it's estrogen that comes from the ovaries, and then of course in pregnancy from the placenta, that really acts as the unifying hormonal glue 
that works with all the different organ systems to keep the female body working optimally. So as an integrative OBGYN, I don't just look at the reproductive organs and say, okay, let's do a pap smear. Oh, you don't have an ovarian tumor. You can go home. You know, it's like, no, I have to understand every organ system because every system is interrelated. So when you do a history, you got to do a review of systems and find out how is your digestion working and how about your sleep and are you having palpitations or are you having joint pain you know how's your skin you have to go through every organ system of course that takes time and that is honestly a huge distinction between looking at a woman from the conventional gynecological point of view as just female reproductive organs to looking at those organs and making sure they're working properly, but within the whole of the entire woman's body and mm -hmm. how it all interrelates. So it's really holistic care, the whole body and looking at all the different myriad effects that come into play to keep a woman's fertility or when she's no longer fertile in her reproductive post years, her menopausal years, how all of these things work together to give every woman the optimal possibilities for her life, which of course requires optimal health. That That's, is amazing. It's so true. And, you know, some of our listeners are women who may not be looking into getting pregnant. And we always try to reiterate how important it is to prioritize your fertility, whether or not you want to get pregnant. Or even if you're like 18 and not thinking about getting pregnant, these things are so important still. So can you tell some of our listeners why it's important to prioritize your fertility, your, your ovulation, you know, with PCOS, we struggle with ovulation. Why is it so important to focus on healing this just for the other parts of your body's sake um, and not just mask it with birth control? Well, that's such a critical question to answer. I, you know, it's really foundational to female health during the reproductive years. Finally, even the conventional medical world has acknowledged that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. Now, what's a vital sign? It's like your temperature, your blood pressure, your pulse. All of these things are vital signs. Why do they call it vital? Because it's fundamental to your immediate and long-term status. So if you have high blood pressure, it's now recognized, well, that's a red flag for future problems like heart attacks and strokes and dementia, all of that. If a woman now, we recognize, I've known this, but like now it's recognized, if a woman has abnormalities with her menstrual cycle, and that could be any of the following or all of the following, it could be irregular cycles or no cycles, heavy bleeding, extremely absent bleeding, like just a teeny bit of bleeding. It, it could be terrible cramps. It could be PMS. So any or all of these are now considered a vital sign. And when they're not right, okay, it's a red flag that something is wrong with the woman, that it's a sign both to treat it, but also to recognize it as a sign that something is fundamentally going awry in this woman's body. So first and foremost, the menstrual cycle should never be ignored in terms of, is it right? Is it regular? Is it irregular, painful, heavy, PMS, any kind of problem with it? is a sign that something is wrong. Just like if someone comes in and their pulse is 120, you know, you would want to maybe lower the pulse, but you don't want to just do that and walk away and say, have yeah. a nice, you'd want to say, what's going on? Maybe they're hemorrhaging, <laughs> like something is going on that's causing a very high pulse. Something is going on that's causing a problem with the menstrual cycle. Now we know there's actually recent data published that women who have irregular cycles have much higher rates of a lot of bad things happening as they age. For example, higher rates of heart attacks and strokes, higher rates of de dementia. They often have higher incidence of developing diabetes and depression, anxiety, because fundamentally the menstrual cycle is a reflection of both the health of the reproductive organs and a reflection of the hormonal status of that woman. So what does that really mean? It means the menstrual cycle does matter, okay? So you want to have a healthy 
long, productive life, you are much more likely to have that happen if you have healthy, regular menstrual cycles. And then you have to actually follow the clues. Like, okay, so what is wrong? And that's where you have to be the medical detective. Like, first of all, if a woman, for example, has really bad cramps, you don't want to just ignore that and let her suffer and say, okay, no, you know, we're not going to actually treat it, but you don't want to cover it up in a way that isn't addressing the underlying problem that's causing the cramps. So you have to first understand why would a woman have cramps at all? Like what, what is going on? So then you have to understand the actual mechanisms that are at play. So for example, when a woman has a menstrual period, that is actually the most pro-inflammatory time of her menstrual cycle. Her estrogen level and progesterone are at their absolute rock bottom lowest. Mm. And we now know that very low levels of estrogen and the estrogen made by the ovary is estradiol. Those low levels promote more inflammation. Now that's appropriate when you're having your period because what is happening? You are expelling dead and dying lining tissue from the uterus. Now, when that is happening, the body wants to help it along a little bit by having a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit of uterine contractions. So think of having your period as like a mini, mini, mini version of a woman in labor, right? A woman in labor has uterine contractions and she's expelling the baby and then the placenta. In when you have a period, you're actually expelling the lining. And a lot of the hormones and things that are going on are actually comparables. And once you understand the mechanisms, nature repeats itself in a lot of different scenarios. So you have a little bit of uterine contractions. And in fact, they've actually put in pressure gauges in the uterus of women who complain of very painful cramps and their uterus is actually contracting harder, but not necessarily in a productive way. Okay, so like a woman nowadays, this is like becoming an epidemic. They have what is called dysfunctional labor. Their uterus is contracting. It hurts like crazy, but the baby doesn't come down. The cervix doesn't dilate. It's like dysfunctional. It's like the whole uterine, like neurological and muscular system is not working in a beautiful unified way to cause the baby to come down in the birth canal, to have the cervix dilate. It's just more like, er, er, er. it's just contracting, but not getting the, the actual outcome you want. That can happen also when you have dysfunctional menstrual cramps. The uterus is trying to get out the lining, but the uterus isn't contracting in a sort of productive way to get it out. And it's also more inflammation at play, creating even more cramps. So what could be underlying this? Why would this happen? Well, it turns out that the neurological system of the uterus, the neurological system of the GI tract, these are really complex systems. And for them to work properly, number one, you need to have the proper hormones. Number two, you need to have the right micronutrients because we now know that the neurological, the muscular system, it requires just the right amounts of all of these trace minerals, magnesium and calcium and zinc and all these things come into play. And so you need to have antioxidants. You don't want to have too much inflammation or oxidative stress. You want everything just right. You produce pro-inflammatory prostaglandins within the uterine cavity, but if you don't have everything properly regulated and you have too much inflammation overall in the body as a whole because of poor diet, too much stress, not enough sleep, all of these lifestyle related things, you end up having too much inflammation, too much of this pro-inflammatory prostaglandins, and then you have too many hard, but useless often cramps. And when you don't have proper cramps, you don't constrict the, the blood vessels that feed the uterine lining. So you don't, it's like a tourniquet. This happens in a woman when she has, after she has a baby, if her uterus doesn't contract down properly, 
then she could start hemorrhaging. And then we give drugs and things, you know, to have proper, to constrict, like act like a tourniquet on those blood vessels. A similar thing happens when you have a period. So if you're not gonna properly contract around those vessels going into the uterine cavity, they just keep bleeding. And then you have too heavy bleeding. So something as simple as looking at the woman's nutritional status, her magnesium levels, her zinc levels, you know, is she getting adequate calcium in her diet from green leafy vegetables? Because that's the right source of calcium. You know, is she in a very acidotic state? Is she eating alkalinizing vegetables? Is she getting enough sleep? These are all signs that will come out in too much inflammation and then dysregulation of this process of expelling the uterine lining. So you have too much bleeding, you have you know too many cramps, and then you know you can go through this exercise with everything that could be going wrong with the period. And it could be, you know, like what's going, why is it irregular? Why aren't you ovulating? You know, why are you having PMS? What's happening with your hormones? What's happening with your overall nutritional status, sleep, circadian rhythm? All of these things are interconnected. Like people don't know the ovaries have receptors to melatonin, that magical hormone that's produced when you're sleeping. And melatonin has receptors on the ovary for a purpose. It helps with ovulation. It keeps inflammation. Melatonin, like everything in the body, is multitasking. It does lots of things. It's an incredibly potent antioxidant to lower inflammation. It also works with helping to promote proper ovulation. So we now know, for example, women who work the night shift, which I did for years as an OB doctor, doing all those middle of the night trips to the hospital, Um, These are very difficult and I paid a price for it. I can tell I paid a price for it. And women, I have patients that work night shifts. They work like three days a week and then through the middle of the night, our society works like this, like 25% of all women are working night shifts or crazy, you know, shift hours that they're not sleeping at regular hours on a regular basis. This creates havoc for your hormonal cycles and your circadian rhythm. And it's associated with many, many different metabolic issues, including infertility, irregular cycles. You're not part of it is you're not properly making melatonin, which is critical for ovarian function. Any woman who thinks that she's a night owl and doesn't need sleep, she's going to have fertility and menstrual problems. And it's not just about making a baby. Like you said, Celine, it's not just about making a baby. It's about having a healthy body. And of course, a healthy body means a healthy brain. It's That's a whole big deal now. We understand it's all connected, you know? So, you know, mood problems are related to gut problems and gut problems are related to mood problems. Everything is multi-directional in the body. So, This takes time. And if you simply say you have bad, heavy periods, you have bad cramps and you throw oral contraceptives at the women. And this is happening because very young teen girls, 13, 14, are having problematic periods in all these different ways. And they are just getting going with their reproductive life. They're like reproductive women with training wheels. You know, they're not even off the training wheels yet. And they're being put on birth control pills and not allowed to develop all kinds of things that are still developing in their bodies because their entire ovarian function is being shut down by these birth control pills. They don't regulate your cycles. They eliminate your cycles and replace them with endocrine disruptors. And there's actually published literature now that girls who start, and these are girls, girls who start on birth control pills before the age of 20, this is a huge segment of the population now, they have a higher lifetime risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. Why is that? It's like, because things haven't finished developing. You need these hormones for your, remember, these hormones are working throughout every segment of the body, including the cardiovascular system, your arteries, your heart, but you can name everything, okay? And you're not fixing the problem. Like you said, you're like covering it up, but it's smoke and mirrors because someday you're gonna pay the price for this, uh, you know? And, And it could be in 30 years. We don't know, every woman's different. And it's like a slow toxin. You know, I don't have all the solutions for contraceptives. I definitely prefer 
barrier methods, but I also understand that it's really critical not to accidentally get pregnant. But we need to understand what you're actually doing, especially in young teen girls. But a lot of girls are being put on birth control pills, and it's not for contraception. It is for menstrual problems. And that's a whole different group that really should never be on birth control pills, except maybe very short term if they're like hemorrhaging, you know, that then you're just giving it as a drug to stop the hemorrhaging and, and then you work on things. But I'm talking about long-term use, like we'll put you on it for the next year, two years, three years, five years, and then it becomes 25 years. I've had patients, you know, they, they go on birth control pills at 13 and then they're 32. And now, you know, it's like, okay, now I want to get pregnant. You've been on the birth control pills like, like almost 20 years. You, your entire reproductive life, you haven't had normal hormones in your body. These are chemical endocrine disruptors. It's like such a big deal. You can see I'm like really worked up over it. Yeah. Because well, it just well, breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that these girls are, because they have had like the standard American diet. They've been eating junk food and not enough fruits and vegetables and they're they have chemicals and and they're not getting enough sleep and they're watching screens all the time and they're not getting all that blue light is suppressing their melatonin and they're stressing they're having too much cortisol they have so much pressure in school and everything and you put it all together that as soon as they start their periods they're messed up because underlying nutritional deficiencies exist they're inflamed already and so nothing is going to work right. Instead of saying, oh my gosh, this 13-year-old, 14-year-old clearly needs to be evaluated. She needs to be working on her priorities, which is health. And we need to get her period to be optimized, to be normal, which will indicate a normal health of a female, which will portend the future. You know, this is predictive of the rest of her life. And instead it's like, here, just go on birth control pills. And OBGYNs today are being taught that these are like health pills, that these are good for them. They're actually pushing them. Like they're like become drug pushers. They literally get angry at them if they don't take it. They don't, they'll just say, you know, you must take this. It's like they force it on people. And these are not even for contraceptive use. And they say, you must go on this. And another thing that comes up a lot is acne. So acne is um, very prevalent. Like 90% of teens get acne. This is a disease of modern society. Ancient civilizations never had acne. This is a disease of the gut microbiome, of the skin microbiome, of stress, of hormonal imbalances. And it's a sign, once again, it's a problem in itself. I'm, you know, it's a huge problem. It, it ruins self-esteem, it's terrible, depression comes from it, but it's also a sign. So it's a sign that there's some really significant problems going on. Often they're deficient in vital, you know, omega-3 and other fatty acids that are so critical for creating a healthy sebum. They're, you know, they have gut dysbiosis, they have chronic stress, a lot of anxiety. And by the way, the skin and the brain are very interconnected along with the gut. And of course, the immune system gets into the act on everything. And instead of saying, oh my gosh, this acne is a sign. And, you know, it's a sign of all these things going on. They're just saying, well, let's just get rid of your hormones, you know, because yes, hormones have a role when they're not right, you know? So instead of let's get your hormones balanced and get things right, it's like, let's just get rid of all that. Let's like make you like your pre-pubertal, you know, so you don't really have ovarian function and we'll just kind of, you know, just kind of shut down all of these systems and give you these chemicals. And I can't say that it can't help acne in some women, uh, you know, and, and teens, but it's, really not getting to the underlying issues. So they're still walking around and they're probably like really deficient in zinc, you know, and these like vital minerals. And zinc is more than just about healing skin. You know, zinc is is vital for multiple, multiple uh, functions in the body. And, and they're not going to be working right, you know, because you haven't really ad addressed the issues. And birth control pills are nutrient depleters in themselves. Yeah. Many, many minerals are no longer going to be at optimal levels and they increase certain autoimmune conditions and there can be associated with depression and anxiety 
And so there's a whole slew of issues. They change the gut microbiome and not for the better, you know? So they have some symptomatic benefits and they are good for preventing pregnancy. I cannot like feel like ignore that they have some positive. I mean, there's no drug that has no benefit. Why would it even exist if it had no benefit? But like every drug that's used, every procedure that's done on a person, it always has to be analyzing risk versus benefit. So is the benefit clearly outweighing the risk? And then part of giving anything to someone or doing anything to someone in medicine is giving informed consent. That's a vital part of being a doctor. Informed consent means you tell every patient what the risks and benefits are and also what the options are all the available options. And then you can chime in with your own opinion, but ultimately it's free will on the part of every patient to then say, you know what? I appreciate that your recommendation is X, Y, Z, but I'm going to choose ABC. That agrees with my philosophy or whatever, that every doctor needs to give a patient a menu of choices and then give their own opinion of what they recommend from that menu, but let the patient make his or her own choice. And that's not happening. What if you had an app for PCOS that could tell you what to eat, when to work out, and how to track your goals every day? Introducing the Sisterhood app. Not only does the Sisterhood app give you access to the largest community of women with PCOS, but it also provides you with a daily PCOS plan. Your daily PCOS plan tells you exactly what to eat for each meal of the day. It's like having me as a dietitian in your pocket. It also sends you a notification when it's time to work out, and it provides step-by-step -step videos to help you reverse your biggest PCOS symptoms. You also get access to 100-plus gluten and dairy-free recipes, the 5 Steps to PCOS Weight Loss Masterclass, and a full PCOS-friendly workout library to choose from. But let's not forget the most crucial component of PCOS weight loss, the support. You're not alone. In the sisterhood, you become part of the largest community of PCOS women where you can chat with us in our private Facebook group. Sirak, myself, and your fellow sisters are in there every day to answer your questions and support you along the way. So what are you waiting for? You can head over to the App Store and search Sisterhood or click the link in the description to get started today. See you in there. I think for for a lot of like young women, when they go to the doctor's office at the age of 13, 15, you know, whatever the doctor says, that's gospel. Like you must do whatever they say, because also like they're in a desperate situation. They want to get their periods back or they want to get rid of their acne or any of those symptoms. So whatever the doctor says, they're like, OK, I'll do it without asking the right questions. No. And they assume that whatever that you're told, if they're given one choice, that's the right choice. But there's a, in almost everything in medicine. There's more than one choice. Yeah, I went like I remember I went to a doctor one time and I, I had like a, one of my labs was a little bit off and he said, you can take this medication. It'll it'll help right away. But and then I was like, oh, but like, what if I take the supplement approach first, like the natural approach first? And his response to me was, oh, yeah, you can do that, too. It's just a lot of people don't want to put in the work. So I just try to recommend the pre prescription first because it's the easier route. And then I was like, well, I'm here to put in the work, you know, like tell me the right options. way and the hard way. I don't mind going the long route. It's just give me all the options. Well, like if you talk about like depression, now women with PCOS, for example, have very high incidence, unfortunately, of depression. There's many published articles that show just on that one subject alone, depression, that when they do a comparative of the SSRI antidepressants versus exercise, exercise wins. Mm. When they've done studies comparing metformin and exercise for prediabetes, exercise wins, but oh, wow. they don't offer exercise. And, you know, if you say, if you challenge after the fact, they may or may not know that, by the way, because that's not being touted in the medical education. And if they even know it, they may say, just like what your doctor said, well, nobody wants to actually do exercise. So why am I going to even offer it? We just give drugs here. You know, it's like, <laughs> but exercise works better than metformin. Exercise works better than this antidepressant. And everything about those drugs is not just about the benefit, but they all have side effects, which yeah. usually they're never told. Usually the side effects of drugs, which is part of informed consent, they're never even discussed. And with exercise, 
virtually every side effect is actually a benefit, you know, like you want to have better insulin resistance, you know, you don't, what you don't want to be so, you know, pre-diabetic and so on. Well, you'd start exercising and then what you sleep better, you have happier feelings, you know, less depression, you lose weight. I mean, so you not only improve your insulin, you know, function, you also improve all these other things of your body, you know, and you maybe get better vitamin D if you go outside. <laughs> so yeah. All good, you know? So that's the thing about natural approach is that all the side effects are benefits, you know, with yeah. a drug. If you ever read the package insert or watch cable television, you hear a lot of side effects and half of them, unfortunately, will say, and you could die. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Speaking of drugs, we wanted to talk to you about Ozempic. Oh, yeah. Because it has been a very hot topic in the PCOS community for weight loss. And some people are saying that they did everything and they weren't able to lose weight. They tried Ozempic. It really helped them. And then some people are saying that the side effects were way too much. It wasn't worth it. The weight didn't stay off. And you know, who wants to get a shot for the rest of their lives every single month? So I'm so curious what your take is on Ozempic for PCOS. Well, I think that the problem, which you just touched on, is that the current recommendation is that there is no recommendation to ever stop these drugs. That once you start them, it's expected you'll be on them forever. Wow. And we have no data on forever. We don't even have data on giving these drugs to teens and young people in their 20s um, and then seeing what happens over several years, let alone decades. And we know that this is not a GLP-1 in the first place. It's what they call an agonist. So basically, it's the essential idea that you're giving a chemical that has a mimicking effect. So what else has a mimicking effect? Endocrine disruptors. And what is GLP-1? Glucagon-like peptide 1. It's sort of like a, a transitional thing between a peptide and a hormone, which is really related to the length of the amino acid chain. So we can call it peptide slash hormone that's made by predominantly specialized lining cells in the gut. It's also probably made in the brain as well, because nothing is actually made in one spot in the body. A lot of things that are made in the gut are also made in the brain, like mm. melatonin, okay? And a lot of other things like serotonin, like dopamine, they're made in the gut and they're also made in the brain. Mm. So the thing about it is, it is technically an endocrine disruptor that you're giving. It's not going to have the real effect of the real thing. And what has happened in medicine throughout the ages when a drug comes out, it's that it often isn't for a long time that we really come to understand a lot of the untoward effects. It can take a while, you know, it could be, and I'm just making this up, it just, you know, it could be an increased risk of certain kinds of cancers or cardiovascular things in the long run or something with the musculoskeletal system. And we just don't know. Now, in terms of like what can we expect from these drugs? I actually have had quite a lot of patients who've been on these drugs now, not actually prescribed by me in the vast majority of cases. Predominantly, they're coming from another office where they're actually now being prescribed as the old cliche goes, like water. I mean, they're just yeah. like people are walking in and they're just saying, I want it. And they're just writing a prescription. It's it's just unbelievable. So what am I seeing in the patients that are on these drugs? And this would be Wagovi, Ozempic, and then the one that's a blend, it's not just um, a GLP-1 agonist, which is Manjaro. And then there'll be many more coming down the pipeline, as well as ones that will also be pills because they're all in developmental stages right now. What am I finding with them? Many of these women are losing weight very slowly. I mean, it's not it's not the um, the gangbuster, you know, blockbuster drug that is being advertised. That's not the effects that I'm actually seeing in practice. By the way, it's not uncommon that the real world experience is very different from the study experience. Maybe it's because they nitpick and cherry pick who they give the drug to. Yeah. Maybe it's because of the dropout rate they hide and bury. I mean, I, there's a lot of stuff that could go into getting the results that they like. But any drug often does not perform anywhere as well in the real world as it did in the study. Just FYI for everybody. Yeah. 
even the no. wasn't that good. It was like no, it's a range. It's a range. There were some that didn't lose any, but they always tout like the most. Okay, and so what I'm seeing in real world is that many of the women are very okay. Many are not tolerating it at all, so they're off of it very quickly. I mean, they are throwing up. They're nauseated. They feel so horrible, like they have the worst infection or stomach flu or something that they've ever had. They cannot tolerate the drug and they have to stop it, you know, within two weeks. They they can't take it at all. So that's actually not an insignificant percentage. Number two, the ones who are able to take it, most of them are losing weight very slowly. I mean, it's not like, whoa, all this weight is falling off. It's like one or two pounds a week. That I mean, that's not like, oh my gosh, you know, we can do that. Yeah. Without it. I'm just telling you. And in a much healthier way. I mean, it's it's now there are rare exceptions. That's not the typical I'm seeing. I'm seeing this one or two pounds a week. And then what am I finding after maybe four or five months on the drug? They're plateauing. They're not losing anymore. They're simply they stop losing. They're plateauing. By the way, if you look at many of the other drugs that are approved for weight loss, this is how if you look at the graph, the weight goes down. Now recognize that they make the graph so that it looks, oh, so dramatic, but it could be like a 10th of a pound is like this much drop, <laughs> you know? So it looks, it's so exaggerated because of yeah. the units that they put into these graphs, okay? So, but as a trend, the weight is going down and then it goes like this, plateaus, and then it starts to go up and it's about here. And then the study ends. <laughs> and I, I, am oh, not wow. I am not kidding. I went through all the weight loss drugs and not take, this is not, I'm not, talking about the uh, GLP-1 agonist. I'm talking about all the other ones that are out there on the market. They go like this and then they plateau and then they start going up again. And this is very exaggerated, okay? In terms of actual number of pounds of weight loss. Now, what I'm finding is that's happening now. That's what I'm seeing. They're, they're losing, but very slowly, then they're plateauing. And then I don't know, nothing's happening. They're just plateauing. I don't know where this is going to go. And some of them already maximized on the, the the highest level dose. So you can't keep going, you know, the, yeah. beyond that. So I don't know where this is going to go. They're in the plateau phase now because this is also new. They haven't, you know, I don't know if they're going to go start going up again. I wouldn't be surprised because yeah. nature tends to override a lot of stuff, you know? And that's why, you know, things like, uh, it's not working anymore. That's true for a lot of like the drugs for a lot of the autoimmune diseases. After a while, they just stop working. Almost all of them stop working. It's a question of how long and then what? what and then what? Then what are you going to do? But what I'm finding is the ones who are losing weight, how are they losing the weight? It's very strange. They are actually becoming food averse, which sounds like, you know, I love food. How can I like hate food? They're actually starting to hate food. Now you who may want to lose weight, you'll say, that's great because all I think about is food, but food is one of the joys of life. So, and this is, they're saying, take this forever. They actually hate food. They don't, even the thought of eating food makes them feel horrible. They don't even want to eat. So what about having joyous celebrations and meals and enjoying dishes that people work so hard to create and you know put on the plate they don't enjoy food at all and so what's happening they have to almost force themselves to eat that's like cuz they're not feeling right and they're all getting malnourished basically yeah. they're on a starvation diet and they're not talking about they're talking about in the ads and all the you know the information that well it improves the insulin function and it improves metabolic health and fat burning and all this wait a minute they're just all on starvation diets because they hate food you know, yeah. that's what happens to cancer patients. You know, they become cachectic and then they waste away. And it's like, because they can't eat, you know, they they become very inflamed. You know, people who have cancer, they, they lose their appetite. People who are under severe stress, they lose their appetite. That's not a sign of health, by the way, but they'd stop eating, but they're all, they're not eating adequate nutrients. And then when they look at the body mass index, that can go down, but not great. But when they look at the body composition, like what are they losing, muscle or fat? Well, a lot of times they're losing muscle. Yeah. Not good losing yeah, muscle. And, yeah. and don't they also lose some skeletal mass too? In, in some That's cases. what I mean. They're losing yeah. lean, that's right. They're losing lean body mass. 
if, if it would be great if they only lost their visceral inflammatory fat, like the belly fat, the fat around their liver fat and so on. That doesn't mean they don't lose any of that. Okay. They lose some of that, but they're also losing vital lean body mass. You can't lose that and then regain it. That's almost impossible to lose a lot of your muscle and muscle is what burns glucose. So I'm looking at the long-term picture of this and it doesn't bode well in my mind. Now they just had a study that they are, they're going to be publishing, but they did like preview of coming events. What did this study show? It showed reduction in cardiovascular events, like lower, it'll lower your risk of heart attacks and strokes and so on. And I can see that happening in terms of if you have anybody who's just like gives the gut a rest, you know, it's sort of like gut rest, because when you eat toxic food, you end up getting like endotoxemia, the toxins from the food come out and create a lot of inflammation. They've shown that after eating a high fat, unhealthy crap diet, you know, a meal, just a single meal, that inflammation rapidly rises in the body as these toxins from the gut come out and activate the immune system. So anyone who suddenly starts going into a somewhat of a fasting state, you know, and the gut is resting, they have less of this endotoxemia. In the short run, they're going to maybe have like fewer heart attacks or strokes over the next few months, okay? I can't argue that. But what about over the next 10 years? Are you going to keep going with this? You know, so it's it would be great if it was something that you only did for six months and it got you somehow like got the ball rolling and everything was right. But that isn't how this works. You're supposed to be on it forever. You're um, basically hating food. <laughs> you go into a starvation mode and um, and where do you go from here? We know that even the drug manufacturers say, if you stop the drug, you're going to gain all the weight back and more so. And why is that? Because what we know anyone who goes on a starvation diet, that that is ultimately the biggest failure ever. That's like, you know, like the, you know, when they talk about the definition of insanity, starvation diets for weight loss have been tried many times. They always fail because yeah. you eventually will eat and then your metabolism is reset at this new low set point, And then you'll gain the weight back and more. And meanwhile, you've lost that lean body mass. And so you replace the weight with fat. So you're They've shown this in people who had bariatric surgery, you know, like gastric bypass and gastric sleeve. Often they start regaining the weight over time and the weight they put back on is all fat. So their body composition becomes incredibly unhealthy. So it's really a problem if you expect to have long, you know, like a lifespan. I mean, so like a lot of these things are useful if you're planning on living no more than five years, you know, but if you plan on being around a long time, what are you going to do when you have nutrient deficiencies, when you reset your uh, metabolic rate at a whole new slow rate? We learned that when people were on that TV show, The Biggest Loser, and they were basically on pretty much starvation type diets. And then they all gained the weight back. When I mean all, I mean all. Yeah. All gained the weight back and often more so. Starvation diets will not work. And to me, these drugs are creating starvation diets. That's all I'm seeing is that it just makes you hate food. You go on a starvation diet and that is not the ticket to ultimate health and anything. So I am obviously a little negative <laughs> about these drugs and not jumping on the bandwagon. Also, I've been around the block too many times. I was there for so many blockbuster drugs being introduced that ultimately got black box warnings uh, taken off the market. So I'm not saying there's no hope for these drugs. There's no person who should be on them. I'm just saying you know, like, like everyone says, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Yeah, I've never seen the magic bullet, whether it's in a shot or a pill yet. And uh, I would be very cautious. I, I really think that this is such an overhyped thing, by the way, almost all the hype is coming directly from the drug companies themselves. They're the ones who are planting the doctors out there who are giving the testimonials. I saw they were talking about it on the news they were talking about how, you know, it's helping people lose weight. And then they were also talking about the side effects. I mean, it was like two or three days in a row that they were talking about Ozempic. Mm -hmm. And um, one, one special, like, you know, five minute series they did about it was about how people are getting Ozempic face. They're oh, yeah, yeah. And then now yeah. they're getting gastroparesis. Glad you mentioned. So Ozempic face 
means that you'll look old before your time because you're losing. Now, and this is important to think about, losing support fat is terrible. So support fat is like fat that's in your feet between your toes and your bones of your feet, that type of thing that keeps you from having pain in your feet when you walk. Mm -hmm. And support fat in your face maintains the structure, you know, between the bones and, and of your cheekbones and your chin and everything else. You don't want to lose all that fat. So that's what you're losing. You're losing the good fat. That's not bad fat. All fat in the body is not bad fat. Remember, yeah. fat is essential. You know, it's just the visceral bad pro-inflammatory fat that we don't want. We don't want to get rid of all our fat. Oh my gosh, that's the ticket to death. You can't do that. So losing the that really critical fat in your face and then having your face all saggy and terrible, that is a bad sign. Not only does it not look great, but it's really a bad sign of what's going on in your body as a whole. And then now there've been many cases and lawsuits already, already out the gate, lawsuits about causing gastroparesis. So one of the things that they touted as a benefit is that it slows stomach emptying. And if you slow stomach emptying, you feel full longer. You also may mm -hmm. feel nauseated longer, you know, it can go together, but you will like, if your stomach is full of food, it's like the idea of putting more in is just like turns you off. You know, it's like, oh, in fact, that's one of the ways that bariatric surgery, like when they do gastric bypass, they make your stomach like this big, you know? And then also when they used to do, they don't do this anymore. It's gotten banned. So banding got banned. Okay. Stomach banding where they would put a band around it and make the stomach contracted. Oh, yeah, they yeah. got rid of that. That's not even done anywhere anymore. That did not work out. That was another failed experiment. That did not work out. No one does gastric banding now. Banding is banned. But you make the stomach either very small, like through surgery or banding, which didn't work out, or you simply make it so that it doesn't empty, you know? So it's like, oh, the food just keeps sitting there and that like, oh, I can't eat anymore. I feel like yucky, you know? So, but some people- it takes that so-called benefit that will make you eat less and want to eat food to a little extreme, like their stomach doesn't empty, period. Like they have that's gastroparesis. So that is terrible. I mean, you can't eat, you can't function, you can't be healthy. And they don't know how to fix it. They, they We don't know how to fix gastroparesis. And now there are people who are developing gastroparesis and which population is the most at risk? Diabetics. The most oh. people that they give it to, you know, oh because diabetics tend to have neuropathy, neurological problems. Okay. And neuropathy can affect the neurological system of the gut that controls motility, things moving along. So if you then destroy the, the proper neurological support for motility of the stomach, because these are already people who have a higher risk of having this happen, okay? And then you add this drug, which apparently promotes this, you can end up with basically a paralyzed stomach. It just doesn't churn, it doesn't move, nothing happens, and you can't eat, you, what, you don't have a stomach. You have a non-functioning stomach that's not like, like optional for digestion and health. Now lawsuits are coming, coming to a, you know, a courtroom near you. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I would be like a little hesitant, especially yeah. when there are alternatives. I mean, now what if somebody, like if somebody were, and this is actually not my patient population, to be honest, someone is 500 pounds and nothing works. They can't even like get out of bed. Like, you know, they need a crane. I mean, they're actually, you know, people like they need help just to move. I don't know what to say. That person has such a problematic lifespan or quality of life. Maybe that's where you do something drastic. Like, well, you do gastric bypass, you know, you do whatever because they're going to die. You know, this person is going to die soon. So maybe that is the place for this kind of a drug, sort of like a last ditch effort to try to do something for someone. Okay. But that isn't honestly my patient population. So if we're talking about a typical woman with PCOS, she's not fortunately 500 pounds. She may be 50 pounds overweight, maybe even a hundred, but she doesn't need to go that route. We have alternatives and I'm for that, you know, and the reason things have failed is because the wrong things were done. 
That's it. You know, I think I have had patients, you know, it takes maybe a year. I've had patients lose 60, 70 pounds and you know what? They keep it off. And I'm sure you've had the same experience. So it's just that they've gotten the wrong advice or no advice, you know? So I would say, please, please don't jump into using this drug and think I finally found my salvation because odds are, it will not be. I don't know for sure. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. This is still pretty new. There's not a lot of data to say the least on using it in young women and using it for long periods of time. By the way, you can't have this when you're pregnant. You can't have this before surgery. People could die from it. So now, and like, how long are you going to go off of it? You got, I don't, nobody even knows. There's no clear protocols for a lot of these things. They're just making it up as they go. But, um, you know, so I I would say don't think that it's magic because I just think it's sleight of hand. Yeah, yeah, it really goes back to what you were saying earlier about birth control. It's informed consent. Like a doctor should be telling you everything you just told us. In addition to like giving proper advice about how to take it too. Like if you're gonna take Ozempic, then you should definitely be doing strength training. You should be taking, should be getting in a lot of protein so you don't lose that muscle mass. But people don't know this so they just stop eating and they're often not given any lifestyle advice with it at all yeah because from what i've heard some people say oh like with ozempic you have to do strength training you have to do xyz but i i don't think anybody's telling that to their patients or at least the majority isn't and why don't you do it first yeah that's (laughs) yeah you know have you tried lifestyle maybe try it before the ozempic absolutely yeah (laughs) yeah Well, Dr. Gersh, this was super informative. I feel like we covered a lot of really core subjects to PCOS and so many women have been asking about Ozempic specifically and so many women are being handed birth control. So once again, we have made a very informative podcast episode. I I, I have to say too, like there was moments in the podcast where I forgot that I was an interviewer and I'm like, I was so like into your, like everything you were saying. I was like, this is amazing. I'm learning so much. Like I'm going to re-listen to this at least two times because it was, it was such a, such a great conversation. Well, I sure had fun with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. And if people want to work with you either virtually or come to your office, where could they find you? Well, I'm tucked in a little corner of Irvine, California, the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine, a regular brick and mortar practice. I have regular exam rooms. I see patients in person. I also can do telemedicine, but I love that one-on-one in person when I can. And um, so I, I work five days a week in my office unless I'm traveling or you know lecturing. And um, I have my books on PCOS, PCOS SOS, and PCOS SOS Fertility Fast Track. And I have others, but they're uh, like on menopause. And I, I'm trying to plan to do a lot more Instagram lives. I'm going to try to stay up on that and, um, you know, write more blogs. So I'm hoping in the new year, as we get um, after the summer to get more aggressively productive on, on social media and such. But um, for now I have some social media and I'd love for you to follow me on Instagram. And I do Instagram lives. It's DR period Felice Gersh, DR for doctor. And, uh, you know, read my books, come and see me in person if you can. That's what I do. That's my mission to to improve lives. Amazing. Amazing. And we'll put all that in the description of the episode. So for anyone listening, you can just click directly to go uh, see doctor on her Instagram or visit her website and uh, book an appointment. Thank you so much for joining us. And we can't wait till next time. Thank you so much. You invite, I'll come back. It was a pleasure. Hey sisters, just wanted to let you know that all of our podcast episodes have corresponding blog posts that dive deeper into each topic. So head over to PCOSweightloss.org slash blog. Is it slash or is it backslash blog? I don't know. I've always heard one or the other. It's forward slash. Or slash? Just in case, you can also go to PCOSweightloss.org.